Hey everyone, this is a long preview to a conversation I had with Yasmin Nair, who's an academic and activist and a writer. If you want to hear the entire thing, you can head over to the Patreon or the Substack and become a subscriber. We really appreciate your support at Hibifty, please. Hope you all enjoy. So right, so there was this New York Times uh, piece by a woman named Maria Habib, and uh, it's, it was titled, They Once Danced for Royalty, Now is Mostly for Luring Men. Um, and it was all about the sort of downgrading, as it were, about the Notch Girls of Lahore. Um, and, and it's a really weird piece because the way she frames it, it's as if this hap- you know, th- these are women who did dance, um, sex work slash um, were courtesans, dancers, et cetera, way back in the day, but it's actually fairly recent. So anyway, but the larger context is that, as you know, you know, within Indian cinema, for instance, the trope of the notch girl, um, the tragic, you know, courtesan is a very, has been a very popular one. Um, and it's, it very much relies on this idea that the courtesan somehow doesn't actually, to put it bluntly, doesn't actually fuck. And that she, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's a, it's a yeah. very weird construct. Yeah. That they only dance, they only, they only dance, dance and it's for, right. and it's for art. It's for yeah. art appreciators. Exactly. 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 Yeah. And you know, the famous film is Pakiza. Um, in India, at least it, there's a very famous film called Pakiza and it starred, um, Meena Kumari, um, a very famous Indian film heroine, but that's sort of the template from which I feel like this article also, this article is based upon. Anyway, but this is all about how contemporary courtesans, you know, uh, have been downgraded because their clientele are no, you know, does not any longer consist of these genteel men from the nobility. Uh, instead, there are these horrible, and of course, there's all of this class narrative in it as well, and also in some ways the racial narrative because in India and in Pakistan and you know in South Asia there are there are lots of gradations based on the color of your skin, et cetera. But there's this very sort of contemptuous idea and running through the article that, you know, these women used to dance and be were cultured and these women would dance for nobility. And now these awful men who just come off the street and give them money to dance. I'm like, what else are you supposed to do if you're a comic? Um, so I looked at that sort of, um, I was really fascinated by the replication of this really weird antiquated idea, but also the erasure of sex work um, in terms of what exactly uh, has been going on, you know, um, for a very long time uh, within uh, within this particular uh, cultural milieu. And, uh, you know, at one point uh, she... She basically renders the history of Pakistan and of dancing girls through this weird nostalgic framework um, and a framework that actually sort of reinscribes ideas of good Muslims and bad Muslims. You know, so one of the things I write is that these evil, um, she writes about how with the rise of Zia al-Haq in Pakistan, these evil Muslim conservative men clamped down on the art, causing it to go further underground, according to her. But then she writes also, but that's actually not true. And she herself has to admit, for instance, that there's a woman named Shagufta uh, Begum, who is still, quote unquote, treated royally, etc. Like the whole history just doesn't make any sense. Um, and uh, you know, she doesn't really look at the economic conditions that define sex work. 
she it seems to be very much interested more in reinstating ideas about good Muslim men versus the you know of the, of of ages ago versus the bad Muslim men of today. Um, so I found all of that very problematic, and it was really troubling. Of course, that um, of course you know this got taken up within I think especially white liberals uh, for the for those exact reasons, right? Because it reinscribed the ideas about that they have constantly about good versus uh, bad Muslims, you know? And it, of course, all of this is disguised as feminism, basically. So yeah, th those were sort of the questions that arose for me as I read the piece. And of course it's in the New York Times, uh, which is constantly, I think, interested in being seen as a paper that can look at the world, but is actually very invested in reinscribing the same narratives about the world that drive American imperialism. I mean, the New York Times is essentially a mouthpiece for American imperialism. And I felt like this place, this piece was just reinscribing that, you know, as I say, it deploys the women in an Islamophobic text disguised as feminism. Yeah. And, and one thing I want to sit with and revisit maybe is um, how there's kind of sometimes maybe a need or a feel for feminists from uh, Pakistan or whatever Muslim country that I observe to, to kind of flatten that being a courtesan or a dancer involves the exchange of sex often, which is what is done in this piece. And then um, how we can never really understand what sex work is in these countries if we just keep kind of creating these narratives for like a gaze that is not actually like the intended audience is this New Yorker, New York Times audience. Um, so I'd want to sit with that a little bit, but also um, the kind of classist tropes that get deployed and who consumes the the art sex work or, or um, Abi Habib uses uh, prostitution and like why deploy the word prostitution and then the the non-art sex work, which is like the poorer men who watch dancers and like why, why this sterilization? Right. Yeah, I'm really glad you brought up the issue of uh, feminists within the countries like India and Pakistan in particular and how they also filter their own feminism through their ideas about what this work should be. So I think I think that's what you're getting at, right? This this classed way in which, and I think the same is true, and I know this is jumping forward to something we might be talking about later, which is the sort of middle-class neoliberalization of gay rights as well. But there's also a middle-class neoliberalization of feminism. And a lot of times, um, you know, I feel like, Upper, and it's as you and I both know, right? Feminism, as is defined as feminism in South Asian context, for instance, or in you know non-Western context, is often defined by women of the upper class. Um, not and not because not because and we want to be we both want to be very clear about this, right? It's not because women who are middle class or lower class are not feminists. It's because the discourse is taken up, it's NGO-fied, you know, there's always an NGO somewhere involved in all of this, um, or a whole bunch of them, and it's then appropriated into these sort of middle-class ideas, and these middle-class and upper-class, uh, upper-middle-class women are strenuously against the idea of sex work as being anything but hugely oppressive, right? So, 
And there's a way in which, of course, then they feed into all those narratives about sex trafficking, which then plugs into especially an American fascination with sex trafficking is, you know, these poor, sad brown women uh, being exploited by evil, loathsome, you know, brown men tying them up and all of that. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, I, I'm really glad you brought up the class issue because there's a way in which um, and this is what you're getting at. There's a way in which the sort of. Uh, upper class, middle to upper class, it's usually upper class women are complicit in this kind of what you exactly describe, I think, very accurately as a sterilization of, uh, of sex and of sex work. Right. And it's filtered through their contempt for these lower class men. Yeah. There's so much contempt dripping in that essay. <laughs> you know? Yeah. And, and you feel it and you feel it here, too. But you feel it there, too. And I guess what's interesting is like you've named it here like the the kind of filtering of like sex work into human trafficking or like NGO-fied like a saviorness it it tends to kind of remove not only the economic conditions of these like women's lives but also the the social conditions of like at least in Morocco so what with I do with what I do with unwed mothers you're they're maybe most likely going to go into something like sex work because you're an unwed mother, you're like a pariah of society in a Muslim country, your, your child up until recently couldn't get a birth certificate with a name on it. It would just say X. And before that, it would like literally say bastard for bastard child. So, so you see these like feminist NGOs in Morocco. So that's like a lot of the interviewing I do. They're trying to give them job skills now, but in the past, the contempt was like, so, so vile. It was like, Oh, why are they becoming sex workers? Well, they can't get hired anywhere because they're like blacklisted by society. It's like wearing like cliche scarlet letter and their children are then blacklisted so their children also go into these types of forms of work and I guess like in I guess like with this essay I'm thinking through also like how it's it's always been art so like during the colonial era I was feeling like the like let me make this art vibe where it's like when the French occupied Algeria and Morocco the types of postcards that were sent to recruit soldiers were like portraits of dancers and like the clothing was framed, like the clothing frames their faces and their bodies in certain ways. So um, I wanted to ask you more about the, like the kind of imperialism that this perpetuates and kind of the images that it compels people to have, but also like, yeah, the geopolitics of sex work, but also um, the kind of hierarchy of feminists within a country mm -hmm. and saviorism. Right. I mean, in terms of imperialism, yeah, it's really interesting because as we know, you know, historically, there was a way in which, um, at least especially in what we now, you know, the subcontinent, you know, when we think about what is now, now it's Pakistan and India, but that whole subcontinent area, area, as we know, right, it was the ruling classes, but also royalty that actually actively colluded with, um, with the British, right? So, and that had, I don't want to call them advantages, but they had, that had specific kinds of fallouts, especially in terms of arts and culture. And in terms of, for instance, the learning of languages and the perpetuation, right, of what also counted as the languages to learn, you know, so Urdu then becomes, uh, uh, you know, sort of elevated for a while, right, as the language of poetry, uh, whereas I think it was, I forget whether it's Hindi or Hindustani that gets then, you know, denigrated. And now, of course, as we know, you know, with the right wing rising in India, it's going back towards, you know, Urdu sort of being pushed down again, etc. So, but there are, I, I guess the point of all of that is that, um, 
that collusion and that sense of what counted as civilization, you know, all of that feeds into um, this previous sort of milieu of what who counts as a courtesan, who counts as cultured, right? The courtesan as someone who transmits culture to these men who come to watch her. Um, and all she does, you know, of course, is dance, etc. And, the, you know, the idea that the courtesan has to be cultured herself, you know, there are all these narratives. And I found it really annoying. Uh, you know, I kept being given examples of, well, you know, but courtesans were ever so cultured and they weren't just sex workers. They were not just dancers. They had to know different languages and they had to know how to play all these instruments. I mean, can we just get rid of this rubbish and just admit that these women, if they had ever stepped out of that house, would have been beaten to death? Yeah. By the very men who came to watch them and go, wow, 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 you know, and why, you know, that sort of that adulation that was heaped on them uh, would have ended right there. Um, so, that whole notion of culture and um, class and what counts as the acceptable, beautiful, cultured courtesan is very much implicated in all this um, this colonial drama, mm-hmm. you know, which gets re-described within that encounter between the courtesan and her client, basically. So it's it's a way of occluding. The, the the fact that these places were basically brothels. Yeah, yeah. And that's like, and that's something that I think is purposely occluded because I feel like not only this author, but a lot of uh, researchers who, like me, go back to wherever our countries of origin are, our parents' countries of origin, and want to do this work, want to come back with a nice story to tell about not necessarily the nitty gritty, but like trying the framing of like, art or history, or this is something that's been going on. And so I guess um, another question I have for you is like the, this idea where the ones who are too previously uh, would watch the courtesans, why why are they nonviolent? Because they have more money. Like the, the intentional framings of this and like, why are men who maybe pay like the equivalent of $2 in rupees or something, why are they violent for the same act? Right. And how do we know that they were not violent? You know, how do we know that these cultured men did not, in fact, beat up these women? And what do we count as violence towards women as well? Um, you know, they're, they're, when these women are, in fact, also constricted by a deeply violent economic system. And in, so instead, instead of looking at that, right, and looking at the fact that they had various kinds of freedom, but also various kinds of unfreedom. Instead of looking at that whole system, we decide to make it all about the men, the the people who paid for their services. Uh, and would you, again, I found it really troubling, right? Because it comes back to this idea that noble men, somehow upper class men, don't treat women like shit. <laughs> Well, this, this branches into something I like want to just wrap this up, but this branches into army hammer a little bit. Yeah. (laughs) That's true. I was struck by that 
um, that sort of pearl clutching around the infidelity. And I was also struck when I read his 2013 interview with Playboy, I was struck by the fact that he essentially says, well, yes, you know, I'm into pulling the hair and, you know, quote unquote, rough sex and all of that, but I'm married now. And I would never do that to my wife because I respect her too much. And I just sort of, my head just sort of exploded at that point, because I think, again, this takes us, right, to that connection that we spoke about, right? Yeah. This idea of, you know, the courtesan, uh, you know, who's supposed to be so delicate and cultured, but basically she's there to fulfill the desires of men who really do think, for instance, and this is in, you know, current and bygone Pakistan, that, um, you know, our wives can't be made to do these terrible sex acts, but let me go off to this prostitute, the sex worker, courtesan, you know, whatever term they use, and get her to do this to me. So presumably then, you know, and my response publicly was, well, maybe that's why his marriage is in trouble because he didn't engage in enough hair pulling and rough sex. And maybe that's what rescues every marriage, every now and then.